left, you better back up. We don't have enough road to get up to 88. Roads. We're going, we don't need roads. Science fiction is an existential metaphor. It allows us to tell stories about the human condition. Isaac Asimov once said, individual science fiction stories may seem as trivial as ever to the blinder critics and philosophers of today. But the core of science fiction, its essence has become crucial to our salvation. Tell me how many lights you see. There are four lights! So this is how liberty dies. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Herzog. And good evening, I am Miles P. McLaughlin. I'm Chrissy Raffensperger. And I'm Dave Sellers. And tonight we are continuing our journey through Star Trek Pilots, Miles. Yes, we are. And, uh... So we did the animated series. We did the original series, two in the original series. And mm-hmm. now we're here at Next Generation, hailed by some as being their favorite series of Star Trek. Yes, and, and as far as having mainstream appeal, definitely. Yeah. yeah, so definitely. And you think about everything it's kind of spawned, even most recently Picard. Right. Mm-hmm. As being kind of part, a part of that. Well, tonight we are bringing a very special guest back to the diner, social distancing, of course. Um, mass required when you enter the diner, um, but not when you're eating. Um, so, but uh, so, so, who do we have joining us tonight? I am delighted to say we have uh, Doctor Trek himself, Mr. Larry Nemechek. Uh, Larry, thanks again for uh, uh, joining us and reviewing Encar- Encounter at Farpoint. Well, when I heard you were social distancing in the diner, then I was delighted to come back. <laughs> oh, okay. yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It's menu. We're very yeah. careful here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We even have curbside pickup, so it's perfect. Works, <laughs> works fine. Works fine. Okay. Yeah. But you're not going to get rid of me that quick. No, 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 no. We're, <laughs> we're going to have you stay for a little bit here. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, Larry, people call you Dr. Star Trek, and a lot of that's in reference to your knowledge and insight into the next generation world. I know that we've talked about it before in the diner, but uh, could you give us just a quick synopsis about why Dr. Star Trek, and especially in next generation what makes you perhaps one of the authorities on maybe one of the foremost authorities on uh, the next generation? Well, thanks. I, uh, I hate to break it to anybody, but there's not, as far as I know, an actual doctoral program in Star Trek. I, that was, that was all the learned marketing people about 10 years ago. So you need something for the Chiron. You need something for the second line better than author, editor, publisher, interviewer, host, actor, director, Blah, blah. So um, archivist. So I came up with that. I then that is a joke when I was younger, but um, it's it's been handy. But um, Next Generation was I mean, I've been a fan and been a background fan for ages. But uh, what brought me out to L.A. was the chance to um, work on this book. And then we decided to move to L.A. And it was right when the big the Berman era boom was happening. And Next Generation was begatting DS9 and then Voyager and then Enterprise. And the first 10, 15 years I was out here started with getting to write The Next Generation Companion because I had written some behind the scenes before memory was a time and before the Akutas even did their encyclopedia um, 
I was doing annual published from home uh, books that look like Bejo's Concordance, only with my own spins. Bejo Trimble's original series encyclopedia called the Concordance that a lot of people had. And I was doing it for the next gen because it was new and fast and hot, and Macs were new, and self desktop publishing was a new thing, and laser printers. And my annual uh, encyclopedias got to the writing staff at Next Gen, and they were like, oh, my God, because there was nothing to help them keep up with internal writing. And uh, from that, that led to a deal with to do a, a not an encyclopedia, unfortunately, because it would have been already written, but a behind-the-scenes making of book that become, became the companion. I only had to do – it was at the end of five years. It's the one that's the blue cover of the first one, five seasons. And I only had to do it in three months. That was the only catch, which turned into six for a long story. But, yeah, I had to turn that around in, like, three months. But we did it, and it was a huge hit. And, like, it, you know, thank God it was next gen. It wasn't my, my writing, but it sold a ton of copies as a licensed book and woke everybody up the same way the, the technical manual had woke people up in the 70s. Oh, maybe we should do this Star Trek thing. It's not just these kids. People are plunking down money. So, you know, Next Gen was already a hit, but when nothing, there had been nothing but novels. And after that happened, Mike and Rick had just done the tech manual, and my book came out, and then it was like, oh, I guess this Star Trek boom is really happening. But we moved out here, and a whole lot of things exploded, and I got to edit the Communicator magazine and work on the fact files in the UK. The, the bones of that are now with the Eagle Moss Ship Collection magazine, which is how long alive that info has been. But all the, you know, the, the experience in Vegas and all these shows and consulting and, and then that was a boom and then everything blew up and then we had 10 years of nothing and the world changed and went digital. And, and finally now with podcasts and some of the projects and Total 47, that's kind of bringing back up. A, 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 before COVID, I was doing things virtually the last five years and one of those was our global program. I call it a mini con all year long called Portal 47. That's right. And it's yeah, behind the scenes people and things out of my archives and documents. But yeah, all that time, um, some partly collecting, but partly just like paper that now I'm trying to scan and make digital. Um, it's just, I've always enjoyed the behind the scenes and then and canon stuff. And then when we came out, when, when the book was done, I just kept talking to everybody. It's one big happy fleet at Star Trek in the Berman era, the way it is now again. And a lot of the same people are all working on all the shows. And so I just kept talking to everybody. I've got five, six hundred hours of, you know, season long interviews with not so much the actors, but the real people that make Star Trek. Yeah, the people that actually. The producers yeah. and writers and designers and all of that. So right. that's, you know, that's where my heart's been. And so many people come along new or veteran and they have no idea about any of that. And what we got in the companion, if you, you got your copy there, but what, you know, that's like a fraction of the info that I had so and continue to you know accumulate so um, it's it's cool to watch CBS now do so much documenting you know they do so much photography and video but um, they still you still can't get it all and they're still only talking to the upper echelon 10 12 15 people right and there's so many voices and so many people that contribute and have stories either just funny goofy stories or like here's the real reason why that thing is there or you heard right. that thing so that's always going to be there so that's that's you know what i've enjoyed that's awesome and that's 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 where the doctor and doctor yeah right <laughs> well so 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 now you, you kind of alluded to like portal 47 and um what's going on now for you i mean we're in covid you aren't going to conventions yeah. but there but there's still this online thing that you're doing um 
How do people become a part of that? I mean, what are you doing? Tell us a little bit more about Portal 47. Well, there's a, there's a, you know, we have a gamut of things. So, um, Portal 47 was the business that I started five years ago. Hello, welcome world. Nice that you're all virtual. We've been doing this for five years. <laughs> but it also, it's also a way for people to globally or people that can never get to a convention. But we have, a, there's a guest, there's um, live components, there's discounts to other things I do. Uh, there's pieces come out of my, we call them um, um, access archives, things come out of my archives. But uh, the highlight of the month, there's like 10 features up to 10 every month, but the highlight um, are the three telebriefings we do. Two, I do a roundtable, one with the Europeans on their time and one on America's time, where people, anything they want to ask me about or talk about it usually is the news. But when I started this, it was actually in September 2015, and they didn't announce Discovery until October or November that year. So when I first started this, it was purely just a, we're here in the fallow times and talking, and it was that new. But then we also have a guest every month that hopefully is a, is is always a behind the scenes person of some stripe, up up and down you know the right the clout level. Whether we've got directors and writers and producers, or we've got the second assistant, you know, catering guy or whatever, they've all got something to share and talk about for an hour that people have never heard before usually. Right. No. That's what Portal 47 is. And there's some different levels coming on down the pike with some more premium. But I also do the Trek Files podcast for Roddenberry, which is a podcast that's out there. We get into Gene's documents, and I have professional guests come on um, to talk about that. And um, and I started doing Trekland Tuesdays Live three years ago when live was this, you know, Facebook and YouTubing was like a new thing. And people can Q&A and interact. And I have, a, I have a topic every week, and then they do that, and that's recorded. And then just recently, COVID time, I started two things, and one I've ended, but people really loved it, called Nonfiction Fridays. We talked about a classic nonfiction book, um, and then we didn't even talk about mine, <laughs> but we, you know, like the tech manual and the blueprint and all that. And I did that for 13 weeks, and then we rested it because I wanted to think about it some more, but people had a blast. But the other thing on Saturday that's live is Dr. Ali Matu and I do called Life Support Live. It's Dr. Ali, Dr. Trek, and one of us is a real doctor. And it's kind of a mashup of Star Trek and mental health in a fun way. So we, we have a topic every week. We've done a couple of watch-alongs. And um, I provide – he's a geek psych, psychologist, so he's got his own geek cred. But we kind of combine Star Trek and, and a theme. And um, and look at this episode or look at an episode or a topic that way, and then he has some – you know, here's some hints for making your life better. We say it's boldly going through uncertain times. And we started during COVID, and now we've got, you know, all the social upheaval and everything that's kind of intersecting. So it's right. it's been um, – it's been, and we do – and we're multi-streaming it. So it's on YouTube and Facebook, and, and that's been, you know, fun to do. So all of that. My Yeah, my film site tours I started doing, I had to we have to postpone them because we can't do anything live. But when we can all be quasi normal again, I do Trekland Treks that we go around LA. People design their own they look at my menu, I've got fifty places on a list and they figure out what they want to go to in a day or more than one day. And uh, we I I tour lead them and we go along with call sheets and we go along with, you know, they wanna they wanna cosplay, they want photos. That's cool. They want to just, you know, relive the history. That's cool too. But, yeah. you know, and they just, it's just a fun thing, whether it's the famous stuff like Vasquez rocks or it's the really obscure places. That's um, awesome. We take them there. That's awesome. 
Yeah. But so, again, that's one of those things that's on pause now that right, we can do it live. Again. Right, right. Chrissy, that uh, mental health uh, review sounds like something up your alley. It, it does. Um, I'm a social worker. I'm a licensed social worker. I'm currently working on my licensed clinical social work. So um, I was a family-based therapist for three years um, with individuals who are experiencing homelessness. So, and I take my clinical skills to help them with the situation that they're. Well, good on you. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. not like, unfortunately, the market for social workers and anybody in mental health is, is going down anytime soon. Right. No, yeah. no, it's, it's, it's not. Um, so if, you know, you, you want to help out listeners, I say, go online, find your, nearest homeless shelter and make a donation because they're going to need it, unfortunately. Yeah, they will. And the wave has not begun to hit. Yeah. When- yeah. We know, I was thinking yeah. as, you, as you were sharing, Larry, I was thinking with some of the uh, Star Trek movies we were reviewing, I remember Chrissy really uh, giving us a psycho uh, a psychology viewpoint of stuff that was happening in them. Oh, right. Yeah. So maybe think about that. Or, yeah. or not. If yeah. they were not done well. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. we complained about that too. So. <laughs> yeah, yes, we did. Um, good on you. Good on you. Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll get some of that in encounters at Farpoint. So, I, yes. I so, but I just, I, Chrissy, that's so awesome. I just wanted to say that it's like when this it grew, Life Support Live grew out of a panel we were going to do about mental health in Picard, the series Picard at WonderCon. And then when WonderCon went away, he and I looked at each other and we were like, why don't we? There was a lot of, you know, when the lockdowns first hit, there was a whole lot of. Let's step up and do more. People are going to be stuck at home. They're going to be bored out of their mind. They won't have cons. And a lot of people were at home, and nobody knew what the ending was, what the end game looked like yet. And, and I felt like stepping up with a couple of things, and one of them was Life Support Live. And we were like, we don't know how long we'll do this, but we'll start it. And it's, and I, but I felt like I enjoyed the behind the scenes, like I said, the interviewing people, fixing canon, all that stuff. But I felt like I was finally doing something besides, you know, how – how many inches from the end of the cuff was the braid line on this <laughs> uniform? You know, it's like how many portholes are on that the original model before they redressed it for the next movie? I mean, you know, it's like that's all awesome and people love that stuff, but it felt like this was actually, you know, combining Star Trek with something that might actually help people. Right. And yeah, and you know. and I and I really appreciate when I find when I see um, fandoms stepping up and you know. Mm-hmm. Doing, doing more with it, especially since so one of the reasons we all love, you know, science fiction is because it, it does take us further. It takes us into an imagination, mm-hmm. into a future of, you know, technology, um, you know, a lot of what Star Trek was, was an envisioning of a better humanity, a better mm-hmm. Earth. Um, and so I think it's really great if the fandoms can look at, you know, either different ideas or different characters and take those things that they really admire and then enact them in the real world. Like that, that to me is really inspiring. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. And also to look at, you know, use the metaphors and all that, the allegories from original series onward to to take something we've got now and be a can opener to looking at it at a different angle or a different, right. you know, a tilt. Or whatever, and I mean, if we do, we're doing Farpoint. There's even a couple things. Well, there's probably several, but I can think of right off. But that's the point that, like, when Ira, when Ira Stephen Bear, when they did Future Tense on DS9, 
it's like everybody talks about the you know the uh, the perfect world of Gene's twenty second, twenty third, twenty fourth centuries. But how did we get there from here? You know, and the Bell riots was one answer of that supposedly. And now the Bell riots seem like they're uncomfortably close, but right, right, <laughs> actually happening. Yes, right. We don't have to exactly repeat between the Bell riots and World War Three. We don't exactly have to relive. No, no. Yeah, I'm okay with the that. Star Trek canon in real right, life. Right, 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 right. <laughs> Right, right, we're okay with that. You know, it's funny. Uh, Christmas- Although, if it passes to the Vulcans, I'm, I, I'm okay. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, true, true. Well, you know, it, it's uh, so it's good that you mentioned that, Chrissy. I'm thinking, you know, we talk about, you know, how I think the thing that this transitions well when we look at Encounter to Farpoint because you look at that, and one of the one of the things is between the dialogue between Q and Picard in this episode is we are able to rise above who we are. Like that's, you know, here's where we came from, but where we came from doesn't have to define who we are in the future. And that it's one of the central messages as we look at the first, this two-part episode of Encounter and Farpoint, and certainly the message we're getting between Q, Picard, and the whole, the, the whole uh, gauntlet that Q's kind of throwing down to Picard and the crew. You know, and it's 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 you look at you look at today, you look at what what we're struggling with with COVID, and there are these bright moments that tell us in the middle of all the crap that we see that we are a, we we are able to rise above this. Will we? Hopefully, but uh, uh, but the potential's there, and it's certainly the challenge. Uh, there are pockets of humanity. I mean, now that are trying to rise above our uh, worst nature to to. To be better, to do better, yeah. and no one's on Facebook that's doing that, right? I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, <yeah. laughs> no, all the non-operatives are on Twitter. What do you mean? Uh, right. um, yeah, it's true. true. <laughs> yeah. But you know, the other thing is, Q is yeah. We, are we officially talking about Farpoint? Sure, now, right? sure. Why not? It's a good, you know, sure. it's a good segue takes into those it. pod shots. Yeah, Q takes all those pot shots at Picard, and Picard keeps saying, "That's who we were. It's not who we are anymore. It's not who we are anymore." And that also overlaps. Oh yeah. You know, another thing of the stress time is the whole thing with like racism and the Confederate monuments, and oh my God, Washington and Jefferson had slaves, or we're going to take them off the monuments too? And where do you draw the? You know, all that whole discussion about you know, past sins, where we are now, how we look at things, are we aware, you know, at least we have our eyes open? Or well, we and, and, you know. And when we look at people that we have statues, and in some ways we have turned certain people in our history into almost like demigods, that we mm-hmm. revere them so much that then when we look at the darker side of them, the human side of them, we have an absolute meltdown conniption. I mean, we talk about the people who own slaves, but when you read the FBI videotapes of uh-huh. Martin Luther King Jr. giving tips to the fellow pastor who's raping a woman in his hotel room, like, you know, are we going to tear him down? Mm-hmm. So there, there's a lot of, but at the, at the same time, I'm not saying, Sure, have a Confederate soldier with like, you know, we we as a society have to decide, you know, where are we going to draw the line? Who who gets to be held up? Who gets to be yeah. 
torn, literally torn and down. It, yeah, it's not maybe so much a drawing the line as it is. Here's the scales. Let's balance all these factors and see what the yeah. Yeah, and and there's and there's a part where you know, go ahead. Every era has the baggage of that era with it, and there was good done and bad done, and we can't you know. 50 years from now, people are going to look at our time right now and say, and look at everything through a new lens. So, right. You know. Yeah. I mean, Lord help them. There, there's, yeah. Oh, goodness gracious. Yeah. Oh, crossing myself here. Um, there, there's just a lot of, a lot of like political and ethical issues. And I think the, the two part episode goes into, um, ethical issues of you have, you know, this alien who was injured and then, you know, they have, it allows them to greatly advance as a society and allows them to have a lot of good things that they need to function. But the undercurrent, the underbelly of that is this exploitation, which can really mirror our own Mm -hmm. um, society. I mean, we don't have slaves here in, in America, but if you go to the grocery store and you buy pre-peeled shrimp, chances are that shrimp was peeled in the Southeast Asia somewhere by people held in bondage in slavery. Right. That is what your cheap pre-peeled shrimp is. So, Or your cheap clothing or your cheap food of any kind. Right. If not, right. If not formal definition of bondage and slavery, they're making such a low wage that they might as well be you know, like old sharecroppers in the south or whatever i mean they're stuck people are stuck in their the sweat of their brow and so many other people are making a ton off of it and and it's so the food the literal food chain is so far down the line to the consumer that people aren't aware even you know until some campaign comes out and exposes it and says do you know that if you buy so-and-so product you're helping keep you know billions of people working pennies a day or little kids are working you know but it tends that you know that's globalizing, and that's well, that's one upshot of globalizing communication. Yeah, and and so you, at the same time though, if we paid people what they should get paid, then the cost of food and everything else would skyrocket, and then you'd have this entire under class that wouldn't be able to afford their basic needs, and so. Encounter at Farpoint takes that entire idea and almost really simplifies it and distills mm-hmm. it down into something, you know, a little bit more digestible. And, you know, Picard's solution is, of course, to to free the um, enslaved creature. But it, it's a little bit more difficult for us as a, as a whole to do that. It just Thinking. struck me. I hadn't thought about this, but that's a lot. That's a real parallel to... Uh, to um, uh, not the Gormagander, the uh, uh, the Ripper in Discovery at the beginning, and which doesn't even go down that far. They re- this this monster creature in one episode turns out to be the thing that's allowing them to make the the spore drive work, and they're jumping around, right? And they're going to be this great weapon to fight Klingons. And Burnham of all people goes, yeah, but we're like we're killing the creature, which goes immediately from you know this killer thing they're running around in the horror episode. So now it's this sympathetic thing they're going to kill if they keep using it to make the jumps and they get rid of it. I mean, they, they free it, but now what are they going to do? And then, Oh, well, let's just channel it through one of our characters, which is almost as bad, but right. it just struck me that it's the same thing. Only the inside, he card free, you know, the crew freeing the, the, the jellyfish, you know, on the, from the bandy is, 
it's kind of like oh set the animal it's kind of like people doing a feel-good you know PETA set the animals free some kind of uh, humane society situation but they had nothing to lose they got to come in and be the Maryworth you know finger waggers at this local at the bandy there um, the, the local population but on discovery it, it was in a, it was even more powerful and it comes faster because it affects them they had right. to sacrifice something and have a risk Whereas it's the good old, in Farpoint, it's the good old Star Trek of we're hopping planet to planet, and the planet of the week, we're going to come in and, you know, teach you the lesson. Even yeah. though we're, we're holding up for some kind of morality, but it's it's about you, not us. Right. And, and the bandy, to be, to be fair, we really don't see the long-term effects this has on the bandy. Mm-hmm. I mean, their villages are destroyed. Um, they obviously imprisoned it and part of you feels a little bit justified like oh you got what's coming to you but 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 the other part of it is uh you know they kind of had built a life around it now uh they're uh back starting at square one in a lot of ways well they they kind of wrap it in a night neat uh, night a nice neat neat bow they say they'll still build a star base there it's just you know it the planet is at a good location, I suppose. Uh, they, they they kind of revealed to us at the end, but it it took a while to get there, though. Right. But Larry, I was also thinking uh, some not a perfect parallel, but maybe some parallel. Devil in the dark. I mean the uh, the Horda. Mm-hmm. The, the, you know the miners are you know this thing is killing miners. We find out well because because the miners are killing the Horda's children, and it's a mama, yeah. And to me, it's this. This is one where what Star Trek does well is what you think something is isn't necessarily what it is, and you gotta you know, you know, think you know, scratch beyond the surface, and you know, it's it 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 challenges your thinking to okay, this like you said, the Horde is a mother. Um, This this creature that Discovery they want to weaponize it. Uh, Burnham is saying, well, let's just first we're hurting it, but let's just try to understand what it is first. I mean, that's what I liked about that one was just, well, what, what is it? Let's just find, let's just find out what the heck this thing is before we do anything with it. And with, with Farpoint, we find out um, this, the star base is a living alien being and it's being exploited. And um, this is one thing Star Trek does well is it, you know, it's what you, you know, it challenges you to think differently about a situation. Um, it may, may, maybe what you think about the situation, you don't have all the facts yet. You got to dig a little deeper. Well, it's a mystery. It really plays out like a traditional mystery saying, this is what we're seeing. There's some things that are odd. Okay. What is that? And there we're finding out along with the crew, like, Oh, this is, Oh, the apples disappeared. Oh, this clothing just changed. And, you know? And, and you're like, uh, and you're like, you're saying, okay, the something of star point stations. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, but there's, there, there, there is a, uh, there is a mystery. There, there's like two storylines, right? You have the Q storyline, but then you also have the far point storyline and it's, uh, and uh, there's a definitely a mystery going on. Some of my favorite episodes uh, are surrounded, especially in the mystery of what's well, happening. Yeah. So. Right. Well, it's that's yeah. The Horda is Devil in the Dark's a great example. And the thing about this is, so it's a pilot. So they're introduced. That you know they've got the and Dorothy Fontana wrote this before they she got disgusted with the craziness, the chaos on the bridge, you know, insanity of the first couple seasons. And here she's in the early think tank. And this is something on the Trek files. 
we have a ton of paper and documents, way more than I had even when I did the companion. And since I wasn't really, you know, allowed to update anything because we'd have to reshoot pages. And that was just a fate worse than death, apparently. <laughs> We'd have to be spending dollars on this. Well, it was weird. Because, here's the thing. It's the companion. So in 92 and then the 94, that's the way I think of them, the blue and the red editions were all paste-up days. It's the early 90s, and it's guys in the back shop in New York, you know, union back shop, and they're cut like the way we used to do in newspapers before, right before digital came in. And then when we updated the black edition at the end of Nemesis, when the last next gen happened and they wanted to update everything, <laughs> it's like, you know, what is that? 10 years went by, you know, just 10 years went by, but nobody had a clue by then, like how to, they were like, Larry, do you have digital copies of these pages? I'm like, no, I don't have digital copies of these pages. They had to go back and like rescan all the original pages. So we weren't, we really weren't going to update anything then. It was just, it's just crazy. <laughs> but um i you know it's but anyway so the thing about farpoint is um it started off being dorothy writing this script with where it's, she's got to introduce the crew because it's a pilot and then have this mystery and they did it and the network uh, the syndicated the studio and gene were going back and forth on whether it would be an hour or 90 minutes to be big in a pilot or even two hours and gene was like we don't we don't want to do two hours. That's crazy. And this is, you know, it wasn't a two-part show. It was a two-hour movie, and it got cut into two hours later. But it saw it when it premiered. It was a two-hour pilot movie, movie of the week. And Dorothy's script was about the bandy and the creatures and the introducing the cast, everything at Farpoint, at the Denim 4, right? Denim 4, yeah. And um, this whole thing about making it longer it was really, I mean, we're talking about the mystery. I think we're giving it a lot more due than it, I mean, you know, gosh, Dorothy, rest in peace. But we're giving it a lot more than it's due because it's kind of like a, it's just a typical la-di-da mystery. I mean, the most exciting, the interesting thing here is seeing the, the casket introduced. Right. And, and then Q, but the whole thing about Q, we go, well, there's the two plots and the introduction of characters. But the Q thing wasn't part of it at the beginning. Q was just Gene jumping in at the end to stretch it 30 more minutes <laughs> to make it a two. And I say two hours. It's not really two hours. That's that's commercials. The whole Q plot is only there because finally they, the studio said, make it two hours. And I'm like, okay. And Gene just wrote all that in because I remember watching it the first time we had people in a watch party. And some fans or some old-time fans are going, oh, gosh. It's a superhuman alien, you know, with omnipotence. Gosh, did Gene Roddenberry work on this show? No. <laughs> <laughs> At the beginning, it was almost a joke. Like, oh, really? What is that? Trelane revisited? And, of course, eventually everybody came up with all these fan theories about, oh, Trelane and Q it was really a Q and we didn't know it. But in the beginning, it was kind of like, oh, okay. It's, what is he? He's not standing there in Roman robes like the Metrons in, you know, Arena. It's just a mysterious one like Trelane. But the, the evolution of this whole story, it's like it didn't come of a piece. It started with Dorothy's mystery, and then they thought, well, we need more. And so, you know, Q came along later. But still, it's still people, I think, come away with the whole – and the Q thing is what brought – we were talking about social issues. The whole thing of for the first time, there was a time when if you went by the original series, and the movies didn't really get into this, I don't think, but at the sum total – because the people in the 70s trying to come up with a timeline or chronology. You talk, we talk about the eugenics wars, 
And then once or twice, McCoy, someone else talk in another episode, talks about your third world war. And a lot of people would, were assuming that they meant the eugenics wars. And then in this, this in Farpoint, was the first time a World War III is like finally on the nose mentioned. And everybody's people were scrambling around going, oh, I guess the eugenics wars weren't World War III. And well, that's good because by then we were into the 90s or we we're about to be in the 90s at the time of Farpoint. And we didn't see this happening, but you know the whole thing of World, War, and then and then first contact the movie finally says no, the World War Three happened here, and you know Cochrane, and this is a missile from the time, and it was the West versus the East, and Econ was the communist Chinese led faction, and all this stuff. But at the time, Farpoint was the first thing to finalize that there was a World War Three separate from the eugenics wars, and not only that, but it was like pretty dystopian afterwards for a lot of the a lot of the world. And that whole post-atomic horror and the Q courtroom, it's like that's not some fantasy he's created to you know be chaotic and put them through the ringer. He's kind of recreating, and then and he appears in the drug war, the you know, the drug sniffing soldier when they com controlled their armies with drugs. And right. they're saying, look, here's a World War Three soldier. So this so Farpoint in this weird little way, filled in a chunk of Star Trek history, and it kind of pushed, it kind of for the first time, we think, oh, we got to this perfect point, you know, and the eugenics wars were a hiccup, and somewhere maybe Colonel Green was in there somewhere. If I'm deep-cutting too much, you guys are with me. But <laughs> no, for we're the good. first time, Farpoint, <laughs> only because of this, you know, if they never had to stick Q in, would... Next generation somewhere gotten around to postulating this World War Three and sticking it in, you know, and they gave definite years for it, and they hashed over the years and when they would be, but they put years in, uh, you know, the time frame, and um, it's like if Gene hadn't had to go in and stick the Q plot in, would we have had all that? Didn't have evolved in a different, you know. It's it's really interesting to stop and think about it. But right, so it's this, kind of serendipitous. We go right over it because it's the crazy moment. Yeah, but but there's a there's a whole little social thing in there aside from you know the humane society <laughs> exercise of freeing the alien at the end. Right. There's a whole little comment in there about World War Three and the post atomic horror and and no one answers how we got out of that kind of until we got the first contact and said we're barely out of it and we meet the Vulcans and they they help us move right. along. So you know there's a lot of unexamined stuff in Farpoint. Right. Well, you know, it's it's funny. You know, I was watching the episode today, rewatching it, and my son walks in and he goes, "Oh, Q! Q's one of his favorite characters. Like he loves Q." And they, and it's obviously oh, yeah. not just him because he was brought back for multiple episodes throughout right. the series. And so, even they though were thrilled to have something strike a chord with people that could be recurring, right? You know, right. And the fact that it happened, in the pilot was kind of a uh, you know interesting. You know, yeah, you know. And again, that it was an accident. I mean, Delancey is awesome. Right, but and like it's you almost think at the time if what was he? He was on. I had a. I worked the paper, and my city editor was a big. Was it Days of Our Lives? I think so. Yeah. And Delancey played this crazy inventor who lived in somebody's basement. And he started off as the villain, but the more they let you know, it's a soap opera. So the more they let Delancey be Delancey, the villain became kind of you know wacky, and so it was endearing, and he became one of the hottest characters. And when. <laughs> When Farpoint came out and his, you know, here's all the, here's the, the stars, but eventually they would kind of start mentioning the guest stars. And the minute they said John Delancey, my editor was like, oh my God, it's Eugene from Days of Our Lives. This will be awesome. And 
Yeah, it was awesome. And, it was. You know, and and look look at his career. I mean, he, right. you know, he took off from there too. But um, right, yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, you know, we talk about the actors. You know, the the introduction of the the actors here. I was mentioning to Miles before the show that you're introduced to all these characters, but in some ways, when you see them in the pilot, they aren't really the characters that you fall in love with. Like data looks like data, but he's not quite data or, or your wharf doesn't dwarf wharf doesn't quite look like wharf. And you know, God, we have Riker without the beard. Um, (laughs) You know, you know, there are, there, there are certain things. And so the chemistry certainly doesn't seem to be there. And some of it seems pretty stilted in in this first episode, but it, it obviously, Thank God Fox wasn't running it and they allowed it to grow and get legs so that by the second and third season, we have a, uh, we have a, a crew that really feel the chemistry is there and you feel everything. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a pilot and it is, I remember thinking though, the night everybody, everybody was like, okay, but it's like, boy, you could really tell who the Shakespearean actor in the bunch was. Yeah. And maybe it's because he had the most screen time. But like of all the actors and all the roles, and you knew some of them, they're all, you know, everybody. It's funny because now you go back and remi- remind people of this. I remember in the day. But new fans who just come along, they go, what? Because the AP story announcing this said, you know, the pecking order of who was famous was LeVar Burton because of Roots. And that had only been like that was seventy eight. This was eighty seven. That hadn't been ten years, and that right. was such a impact, a social cultural impact. Oh yeah, that people. Oh my God, Levar Burton roots. And then I, I was interested in Levar Burton because he read to me in the morning on Reading Rainbow. Okay, I was going to say I've been reading Rainbow by then too. Yeah, that right. The whole generation, and that was the early years of reading Rainbow too. That that was legit. The reason why I got into Star Trek is because at the time I would have been like. Well, I was born in 1987, so oh, okay. I, <laughs> like my my dad would be watching it, and I I remember distinctly coming down and going, "Oh my gosh, it's it's reading Rainbow Guy!" And, like sitting down and like watching this thing. I had no idea what it was, and that that was my introduction. Have, what do I know. Eyes? Why do they have his eyes covered? That's weird. <laughs> I I did, but I was like, I'm gonna watch. I was glued because I was. I loved that so much as a child, and that's how I got into Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> well, Reading Rainbow. Reading Rainbow only ran, what, 30 years or something? LeVar? Yeah. 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 <laughs> but seriously, when they announced the cast, and it's not about pecking order and show listing, it's about it's, you're writing a lead based on real life. It was LeVar Burton of Roots, the young kid who you just liked in Stand By Me, which was, you know, Will, because it had only been like the year before. And then a very famous Shakespearean actor that you don't know, but trust us, he's very good, and other people. And that's right. literally the way, you know, <laughs> and suddenly he had to read on down to see Patrick Stewart's name. But it's like, and a Shakespearean actor that some of you may have seen in Dune, or you may have seen in a, whatever. And right. people laugh at that now, but it's like, that's, that was, that was the pecking order of, you know, wow. and, and. Patrick was doing a play. I mean, the whole famous story of Bob Justman seeing him doing a, a Shakespeare workshop at UCLA when Gene was like, we've got a, we've written this French guy because he was trying to get away from Kirk, you know, Mr. Iowa, Mr. All-America. And they were trying to globalize it and, you know, all the things that had, that was the other, so much of the pilot in Next Gen, we cannot be a copy of the original series. So everything, the character types and the relationships and even the 
there wasn't going to be a chief medical officer and a chief engineer at the beginning. I mean, they, they were going to be there, obviously, somewhere, but they weren't going to be like league characters. So trying to blow up, you know, they didn't want anybody to go, oh, who is this show Spock? Who's this show Scotty? Who is this, you know? They came up with the different titles and they recombined the job positions. There's a captain and a first officer. But after that, everything was kind of blown. And the captain was not going to go down, you know, with every – people had talked for 20 years about how that was silly for Kirk to go on every landing party. That wouldn't happen in the real Navy. You let the, you know, the, the away guys go down. You know, the captain stays on the bridge. They've invested way too much in him to risk him like that on right. first contact. Right. So, I mean, so a lot of that kind of 20 years of examination and thinking – you know, was part of this, but um, it's just funny how you're talking about watching the pilot. Yeah, they were all like unformed, like lumps of clay that eventually get molded. And even knowing, oh, that's LeVar Burton and that's Will Wheaton who was in Stand By Me last year. Those were kind of, but you watch that pilot and after two hours, the first time you're like, wow, you can tell who the stage guy was. Oh yeah. You could tell who the Shakespearean actor was because yeah. it's like, yeah, it's his show and he's, He's the only one you felt like he got a little more script time. He's the only one you felt like had a handle on a character, right? I mean, right. I feel sorry for Jonathan. I don't think Riker ever coalesced to me until Best of Both Worlds. Right. Like he finally had a hook hook. Right. Besides, I'm the young guy, and I get the girls occasionally, and I lead the away teams because I'm not right. the captain. <laughs> and no fault on Jonathan. It's like what were they giving him to work with? And finally when that whole thing about I've turned down a command three times, what, you know? it's like, wow, it's like that's when he clicked. To me, yeah, and poor De you know, poor Marina and Deanna Troy almost got written out of the show because once they far point and that pain, I feel pain, and I went, oh, you know, it's hard to portray an empath. I tell yeah, them. yeah. I wonder what we're gonna do with her in the meantime. Well, she's a counselor. <laughs> Let her counsel. But right, they right. Took them for years to figure that out. Yeah, <laughs> I have a, I, I have a question for you, Larry. I, so we talked about in prior shows we talked about Star Trek. Um, was this pilot? used to pitch the show and uh, or did they actually did they actually say we're making a series and they really didn't have because it was gene roddenberry they didn't have to do too much selling you made the you know the famous fox crack there like with firefly and everything else no this is the whole point of this was they took the new star trek around to all the networks and fox was the baby network then it was like it had just been out for like a year so it was like low on the clout pole so they, they took this to idea to ABC, NBC, CBS, and then Fox, and nobody wanted – they did not want to – talk about not reliving the original series. They also did not want to relive what we now call living on the bubble all the time, You know the two famous Save Star Trek campaigns. Gene was like, no, we're going to spend the money. We're not going to have that hanging over their head. We have come too far. This is the first you know, dead show that was a mistake and never should have gone away, so now we're going <laughs> to we're going to rub that in everybody's face. Like, you know, this is, you know, we've spawned a movie franchise. So take that, people who decide ratings and cancellations. And they held out and they, and they could never, they would never get a commitment. They wanted like a full year commitment and X amount of budget. And no one would give them that. Even Fox, you would think they had nothing to lose, that they're looking for something. And they would, they would do a, a huge, you know, leapfrog if they had a Star Trek series, even then. But they were like, no. So fine. That's when they went fine. And, Gene Paramount knew what they had, and that's when they came up with the whole let's just syndicate it, which was not a thing done. They put their own network together for this one show, basically, and sold. And by the time it debuted, they ha I've got it in the book somewhere, but I mean, they had like three fourths of the country, seven eighths of the country cleared the markets, the TV markets. 
And they, you know, on a business side of things, Next Gen revolutionized that. And then syndication, and then cable came in to kind of take the air out of the room of that. But TNG and DS9 were, so you're talking about these risks. Yeah, the pilot was not, it, they didn't have to do it to sell it. It was sold. The studio was selling its own thing and had all these, you know, 100 plus markets set up already and big markets. So it wasn't to sell the show. It was to so they could, they had the luxury and they didn't have to look over their. They they did as the show went along, but the numbers were always exactly what they thought or a little better, and then things got crazy after Best of Both Worlds, and then it, that's when it took off in the stratosphere, and they, you know, started doing the daily rerun stripping from the early years, like during fourth fifth season, I think. Right. But so they had that luxury, and so did and DS Nine was the same way, and Voyager was the same way. Although Voyager was on UPN and it was a baby, but Voyager always got treated like the golden calf, you know, the go- the golden child. And halfway through, and Enterprise started that way, and then UPN was such a dinky little network, and they had their little people pretending to be execs, and 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 um, CBS just took it over. What's his name? They got booted finally for his Me Too moments. Um, I've gone blank, but he took it over and said, "Okay, uh, you got to earn your keep. Your numbers are crappy. I don't care what network you're on, what crappy network you're on. You got to earn your way." And then that's where they bore down on Enterprise the last two years. But right. yeah, early Star Trek. Didn't have to put up with that, and that's exactly what Gene wanted. Right. He said, I'm not going to do it if we have to go through the crap I had to go through with NBC again. Yeah, well, there was such a huge fan base by that point that, you know, you know, I was thinking as I was watching it again today, what's it, what it must have been like to be, because I wasn't a Star Trek fan when it came out, um, but how how what it must have been like to be a diehard Trek fan and seeing the shot come up of the enterprise the first time you see it on the screen again, after all these years to see it in television, that had to be a huge moment for Star Trek fandom at that point. Well, it was, and talk about being relevant to now before the internet, before all this, um, there was the faction. And what's weird is, it was like I wasn't. I didn't see it in NBC. I was a rerun baby. I came along a few years into syndication, but that first generation that saved the show and then kept it going, and then the whole fanzine writing into clubs, into conventions, and then the phenomenons off and running. And by then, thanks to Star Trek, George Lucas can get financial backing to make Star Wars, and then things really blow up. And then there's a sci-fi boom. You know, all of that all goes back to the effect that Star Trek had on people that a lot of them took their energy and wrote fan fiction. And most of it was women. But the weird thing was by 20 years later, when Next Gen's coming out, those people were so invested, they didn't see the forest for the trees. And there was, you know, they were, God bless them, just like now. They were passionate, but they were really, they could not believe. I mean, they they had two choices. They could either... The, the, the original cast was getting too old almost to do movies, but they were beloved, right? And they were the icons, and they're the reason this was a thing. So it was like either they recast the roles or make them younger, like young Kirk and Spock, and you know, like, stop me if you've heard that before. Or <laughs> the brilliant, brilliant thing was to put this in the future and handle the whole thing about, well, the TV is better, the tech is better. You know, it's 20 years later, we can do so much more now than we could in 1965. 66. So all those things were solved. They solved the casting issue. They solved the look issue, you know, and even the things they want to fix, they just say, well, 80 years have gone by and that's changed. 
So it was like it was and at the time we didn't realize how genius that was because suddenly now Star Trek is not just this show about Kirk, Spock and McCoy on this ship called Enterprise. It's about it's it's a franchise. It's a universe. And now you've gone 80 years ahead. Well, what about the years in between? And the Federation is how big? And what about it's over here? And, you know, what's this alternate universe? And suddenly you had this whole huge thing. Well, at the time in 86, 87, this new talk about a new captain, a new ship, and he's bald French and what and what and an android and what? <laughs> there was that, that original clunk of fans, a chunk of them were like, it was like sacrilege. They could not get out. I mean, Star Trek to them was Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and the Enterprise. And they're like, this is blasphemy. And, you know, they're, now, not me. I was a young, younger. And there was most of fandom was like, this is exciting what you just said. This is awesome. This is great. Right. We finally got our series back. But there was a lot of fans that were just, they were, they were distrustful. They didn't think it could happen. They felt betrayed. They felt like the old original crew were being like ignored and shuffled off. And, um, you know, you read the letter zines like Interstat, and there were like, I'd say one out of 10 people that were like, I'm not watching it. I'm boycotting it. And a lot of them just went away of that fandom. And then new people came in. And then when it blew up, I mean, the numbers for next gen at the end were 10 times what the original series and reruns. Is. Right. You know. Right. Wow. Well, so, so go I, ahead. Well, I was going to say, I, I think that it was really brilliant of them to not try to just redo because <laughs> I, I've watched, like, remakes just don't work they just don't you you watch the remake and you just i don't know i've I've tried watching a lot of different remakes over the years of of classic films and things and it just doesn't work for me it just and i don't think it works for a lot of the fans because no matter what you're you're stuck with either just recreating whatever it was scene for scene and that's just boring because if i wanted to watch that i'll just go watch the original but then you have to mix it up and then people get mad for changing it so you, you can't win. Damn if you do, damn if you do. Yeah, exactly. If you make a exactly. remake, you just can't. So I, I think it's really a good idea to just say, you know what? We can't have Kirk 2.0. Let's not make him Kirk 2.0. Let's let him go be his own character and his own thing. And like you said, it opened up. It went from being this teeny tiny thing to open up this whole world of Trek. And I think that's a really good thing. Mm-hmm. Right? And I don't even, I don't think it even dawned on, I say us, I don't think it dawned on everybody what that meant. I mean, in the moment, it was like, this makes sense. Guys, they didn't have to read, they didn't have to make this, you know, they didn't piss more people off by recasting. I mean, that was the emotional thing of that. It was so smart not to try to recast and replace them. I'm air quoting, replace, nobody wanted to do that. Plus, there was still value in them doing, they had another movie or two left. I mean, right. no one wanted to take away the value of doing the original cast movies, right? They had just done, they had just done Star Trek four, which was the biggest global box office any Star Trek had ever had. Still you know, my favorite Star Trek graphic movie. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so they didn't, nobody wanted to put them out to pasture, but it's like, but they, that cast was not going to shoot 16 hour days on a TV show for 20 or 26 episodes a year. That wasn't going to happen. So how do you resolve this dilemma? How do you get people more Star Trek? Let those guys do their movies on a movie pace and time and budget, and we'll do this. But I don't. At the time, nobody was thinking. People didn't think franchises then. Like now, you know, if like you're an author with an idea, you develop the book, the game, <laughs> the movie series, and the TV spinoff, and you have this whole package of a franchise, and that's right. what you go. Sell. 
Right. You know, but that was the eighties and things. And people didn't even think about licensing. They were, you know, they'd had Star Wars for 10 years and people still didn't think about licensing merchandise and stuff the way they do now. So that all, you know, even when they, sp- they thought in terms of spinoffs. And so DS9 was like a spinoff. You don't want to lose this energy in this audience. But it was so popular that they, you know, like within two years, here comes Voyager because UPN needs a flagship to launch the network. And what else are we going to use but Star Trek? And even then, they were worried about dividing the audience, and, which is what happened. And then, and then the sci-fi boom on TV that Next Gen helped start winds up working against because now people are watching, you know, Xena uh, uh, and Hercules and, you know, Andromeda and X Files and everything, and like it's all suddenly the thing next gen had for it the first few years was like nobody was watching science fiction on tv and then within the end of you know within the end of the run bang here's 12 and 15 sci-fi shows not all of them on network uh what you call it uh submarine um oh sequest with the dolphin yeah sequest sequest was was like nbc responding to and the spielberg name behind it and it was like nbc responding to next gen coming along a little bit but it only went a couple of years so it's like, but all these syndicated ways of getting, you know, in um, Babylon 5 eventually, you know, oh, with, yeah. <laughs> with, with DS9 and all of that. And then it's like, so now there's tons of sci-fi competing with DS9 and Voyager. And then, you know, just to throw this in and the cycle, you know, ends with Enterprise and people look at, oh, Enterprise is like the failed show. It only went four years. But just to say the one year Enterprise overlapped with Battlestar Galactica when Ron Moore, you know, Talk about reimagining and a lot of controversy at the beginning. Oh, you've made Starbuck a woman and all that kind of stuff going on. But then people love Galactica in, eventually. And it was like, it was like, oh my God, it's the golden child. It's the boo. Everybody loves Galactica. And it's like Enterprise limped, you know, home the last season when they finally, when CBS Moonves, Les Moonves canceled it because it wasn't, you know, doing a top 10 network show. Well, it's on crappy little UPN. That's barely in, you know, 80% of the country and half the stations are showing it at two in the morning because it's the hockey channel and they show the hockey game at eight and they, they knock Enterprise to two in the morning the way they were doing DS9. But the dirty little secret is even as number 95 out of a top 100 shows on network, Enterprise had a million more viewers a week than Galactica did when Galactica was the hot new show but galactica was like on a a cable channel galactica was a big fish in a small pond enterprise was a little fish in a big pond but if you actually got them out of their ponds and measured them enterprise had a million more viewers a week than galactica did when the year they overlapped wow wow oh yeah so as much as we think down of you know like enterprise limping home at the end it was really had the eyeballs and people talked about the tired for saying no the producers were tired the fan base was and that's when fan films were exploding oh yeah people still wanted their track anyway we're not talking about farpoint sorry guys. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's all really yeah we're, we're having trouble what? you know so we, we just bring it back to farpoint you know so paying trying trying to draw in the older fan base uh, from the original series it did bring to farce kelly into the episode mm-hmm. right yeah, that's that, that and great I'm so scene. Shocked they kept that a secret. They actually pulled that off. Yeah, yeah, it was a, it was a, it was it was neat to see that. And I thought, well, they're they're not dismissing the original series. And they're trying to ground it in the original right. series too. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, which 
if you're if, if you if you're if you claim to be a Star Trek fan and you don't like that scene, you need to hand in your Trekkie card as far as I'm concerned. No, That's- <laughs> and, and he's so McCoy. He's just so McCoy. He goes, well, it's about as bad as a Vulcan. You know, he's just... just uh-huh. yeah. Yeah, that, I don't see no Vulcan in ears, Yeah. Oh, absolutely. He doesn't tear Yeah. Enter- enterprise to enterprise. Point at, you know, computer mind to computer mind. I mean, it was like, yeah. Yeah, that that scene hit me in the feels watching that again. Yeah. <clears throat> it's amazing how they and somehow like and D did that. They've come out. We've had this. I didn't have access to them in the beginning, but you know, every I say every cast has an actor who they fall in the sweet spot between being high profile, but they eat, for whatever reason they feel like they've got a career to protect. They feel like they can't undercut themselves. Whatever, but everybody, every cast has an actor that's the highest ranked who will go and do stuff if the, if the show or the studio asks them to do. Like, Jonathan is that guy in the Next Generation cast. And uh, but Armin is that guy in the DS9 cast. And D is that guy in, in the original, like, who's the highest, I hate to say rank, but there's a billing order and there's a clout line, you know? And who's going to have the highest now? It's like, who's got the biggest IMB, IMBD score or whatever. But D was that guy. The, he was the one that connected the big two to the little five, right? Overlap there in, in a human way. And um, in a cloud, in a pecking order, in a Hollywood cloud, you know, commanding kind of way. And, and, and he did that for scale for Gene to help him, you know, as a thank you to Gene. He didn't do, you know, he didn't do a contractual thing. And the script never says Admiral McCoy, it just says the Admiral. Yeah, uh, the know, dialogue. Was keeping it secret up until the last mm-hmm. minute. But there's just, you know, they and they did one take where he's wearing his, his monster maroon, and they just heavily, heavily grayed his hair. And it just looks like he's about 10 or 20 years older than the last time you saw him. So they totally went with that. And poor Mike Westmore had to do all this. Mike Westmore was like, Interviewed on a Thursday, hired on Friday, and they had to start shooting data on Monday at the at the, at the oh, park. Wow. <laughs> in the, I mean, wow. he was like insane. He had to do data and wharf, and then do the old Admiral McCoy. But there's pictures now of the two of them where Gene and D are together, and it's just like D with like your typical college theater, community theater. They've just heavily grayed his gray hair, made it white, and he's wearing his maroon uniform. And they went, nope, that's not enough. We need more. He's going to be 137. And they, and he didn't get to, it's like uh, other times the first year, the Admiral Jameson in, in uh, the other one, where they had hyper-aging, they had eye-aging, and they had to do aging makeup. And it's really crappy. <laughs> right. It was much better with Pulaski the next season. But anyway, so it's that kind of, and he's wearing kind of like this 80 years in the future retiree civilian-ish right. admiral outfit on with, with kind of epaulets that kind of echo something-ish. Servicey, so who knows exactly what that was? But he did, D did that as a favor for Gene, and I'm just still amazed they were able to keep it secret until it aired. That didn't leak at all. Wow! Would it have done that today? Twenty four seven social and all that. They still managed to pull leaks off, but somehow they managed to not to keep that in house and not let it out. And it's yeah, it's amazing. That was definitely a sop, and it's a tradition. You know, after that, every pilot from the Berman era, at least, they always tried to. I mean, they were very smart to have Picard and Patrick in the DS9 kickoff, and then they have Quark to help kick off Voyager, and then it's kind of reaching because of the time frame difference, 
but they they go and they have Cochran and Jamie Cromwell not getting credited. He didn't take a credit for it because it was just a view screen scene. But they have at least have Cromwell in. Um, they have uh, Cochran in the pilot for Enterprise. So oh, yeah, you know it, was, it started a tradition too. But yeah. it's a very for what you just said. It helps bring. It helps people bring. over in curiosity. Right, right. Except it was a secret, so it was more the after effect. Right. You know. Right. Well, you look at. I mean, it looks like they used a fair amount of prosthetics on DeForest Kelly. I mean, so he was a real. You know, he he definitely took one for the team. I mean, as far as allowing <laughs> to be made up like that. I mean, it was. Yeah. I mean, it, it was it worked, but just you know, you know, he 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 he. he He's only getting paid scale, but he's, you know, probably has to show up early for makeup and prosthetics and, um, you know, you know well, good. It's, like I said, Mike Westmore, he had like two or three days to do that on his budget, but it was like, they didn't have time to do moles and a sculpt and build up prosthetics right. custom to his face. They basically had to, you know, do it and run with it. Right. Which is insane. Yeah. Hey, so I, so I have a question, uh, for you, Larry, as we, cause we're, we're getting a bit long here, but, um, as far we as talked about her point we actually talked about yeah, well we we can go a little bit longer here but i want to be sensitive to people's times um the when we look at encounter at farpoint the impact that does, we often talk about the impact that a pilot had on the future episodes of the show either this season or down the road the show running obviously when we talk about that we're talking about a pilot that's used to sell the show in this case, not so much, but as far as setting up the show, in your opinion, how does Encounter at Farpoint, how does that impact the rest of the series coming on down, in your opinion? Yeah, well, it didn't sell the show, which you just got me thinking. It didn't sell it because it was sold. Right. But they sure took notes. Like, Troy, I mean, the scene of her going in the creature was supposed to be a bit, you know, they very famously cut it. She's in there saying, pain, pain, I feel pain. Everybody's furiously writing notes like, do not do on the nose empathy, telepathy anymore. Like, this does not work. Got to do something differently. But also, um, they did some mechanical effects things where tendrils from the walls came out and like grabbing people. And they had to phaser people loose and beam out. And it looked just looked horrible. It was like worse than the memory wall from motion picture, like the scrap scene because the physical, the live effects didn't work. They looked hokey and horrible. Right. So I, I still would love to see the lost. Uh, we still haven't seen that emerge, even with all the st- all the projects that have been done since. But all the notes that came out, like you know Troy, get her out of the scan, get her out of the. They call it the cheerleader outfit, and she went into the civilian thing with the bun, right? They they right. desexualized her. They they didn't let her be her, which is amazing. Then years later, she's back into it. But um, they yeah, they came away with a lot of notes on what to do and not do, and what we would you know push and not push. And that's kind of some of the uh, you know they kept uh, you know futzing with Data's makeup. They got rid of the eyeliner. They had a lot of experimentation there. But Worf's makeup, you know. Those are, you know, cosmetic, literally cosmetic things. But right. uh, a lot of it was just, it was just figuring out how to shoot in the bridge and the scenes, which they kept going through. They went through it. They didn't, until they got Marvin Rush in the third season, they weren't happy with the DP they had. But um, uh, Q obviously made a huge impact. And I think somewhere somebody said, we got to bring him back, you know, good choice. Right. 
but no, it was it was just kind of a getting people used to it and what this would look like. Right. And, um, yeah, Larry, I have a question for you. I think it was more. I think it was more on the on their side of things than on the on the production side than on the audience side. Right. You right. Know? Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Makes sense. Go ahead, Miles. Um, was the saucer separate? I mean, saucer separation something we were supposed to maybe see more of? Because I, I mean, they really made a big point of you know really showing us the whole and it was it's, it's a beautiful cool sequence the whole saucer separation and the salt and bringing the ship back together but I, I just know we would only see that every so often moving forward yeah like they used it one was it uh uh the arsenal of freedom they use it as a story point and they go to the battle bridge right. and then they don't use it again until best of both worlds and part of it was for the pilot and remember, this is like 1987. They got ILM to shoot, the, to build the miniatures and to shoot the pilot effects. And Bob Justman, bless his heart, was going to start off doing what they did with the original series. We're going to have like like the original series, like Orbit Planet, left to right, Orbit Planet, you know, over, over the shoulder shot of Sulu to the view screen. You know, all those standard library shots. To be on budget, they were going to do that. And they got going and they realized, and poor Bob, uh, Rob Legato, um, they realized that they it was 1987 and they couldn't get away with that anymore. And the visual effects budget just went through the roof, and they they very quickly had to hire had to hire two and three and four and five and six, and they finally went with two teams that alternated shows. And even then, they were compositing on video, which is why the the last round of Blu-rays was a big deal about look at the way you saw it and the way it's because they shot stuff on film and then they composited on tape instead of a you know an optical printer pre-CGI, obviously, and everything, all the color and quality got dumbed down and, you know, hazy on the visual effects. So, yes, having said that, the model they built thinking, okay, the way we did the original series and the movie model, you know, the six-foot, eight-foot, 11-foot models for detail, they were such a bitch to shoot, and the original could be filmed together or apart, and that's what you saw in Firepoint, but it was ILM handling it. Back in Hollywood, if they were going to have some local effects house, it wasn't quite as insane as it was in the 60s. People had come along and could handle more on a TV time budget, but it was so huge and flop. It was a pain in the ass to shoot that. So, yes, it's like we're going to save that, especially after the second time. We're going to save that for huge, huge moments. And it just got easy to say, let's not. Let's not do it. Let's not do it. Let's not do it. You know, every once in a while, somebody would say, you know, we could separate the saucer, and there would be some story point. Not like they kept it alive, but you know, they they didn't do it. And right. then finally, best of the worlds, the cliffhanger, the Borg. It was like, okay, we're gonna do it, and they actually got it down and shot it. But they also said, um, let's shoot like stock footage, and they didn't. They never did it again after that, right. even. It was still such a big, huge pain. Everybody was like, because by then they built the little three-foot Enterprise that they loved to shoot with because they could do some things with it. It's just it's, it's amazing, as romantic as the awesome as it was to have your Phoenix moment and go over to MHG and see the models, you know, when they would get them out of the crates and shoot with them, and how boring it is to see a bunch of guys and gals sitting at a bank of computers, and that's what visual effects is today. As boring as that is to go visit, they can do so much. 
you know, the, there's not a mounting bar getting in the way. If you want the damn ship to do a barrel roll, the ship can do a barrel roll. Right. I got another pr- production question. Sick Bay, it looks like the way they shot it, I, I was asking myself, we only saw a tiny bit of Sick Bay. Was, was the set not finished at the time, or was just that was just the choice of the, the you know, the, the direction of the. Yeah. So, eight, so stage eight and nine. So, nine at Paramount was the same stage that all the movie, the original motion picture sets had been built on. The transporter, you know, the corridor with engineering, transporter, uh, the quarters. What am I thinking? Not leaving, am I leaving out? Oh, the, the big room that could be a shuttle bay or whatever. The bones of that. They went in and redid. They had the corridors and they made them a little, a little wider so TV cameras can get in and out. But they basically had the bones for. It. What's funny is the bridge and then ten forward. Uh, the ten forward didn't exist, right? And the captain's quarters were kind of a redress. The bridge was actually built a stage over on six because the first year of Next Generation, the Colbys, primetime spinoff drama from you know, the 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 primes Dallas and all that. The Colby's was on stage eight, and the minute the Colby's was was canceled, they had built the bridge on little stage six, like another alley away. And the minute the Colby's was gone, they cleared the stage, tore down the bridge set, brought it back to stage eight, which is much easier. They can go back and forth between the two stages now and share resources. And they had more room, and that's when they built Tin Forward, and they built an, an even better captain's room. And and um, what am I trying to say? Oh, the conference lounge. The conference lounge was built. The first season, the observation lounge is actually a read. This is amazing. Is actually the sick bay part where the bed sat. Mm-hmm. There's panels that are covering pieces, and they actually flipped in and out and redressed observation wow. lounge and sick bay. Wow. The first year. That's how they. Yeah, they got by. And then second season, everything got its own space, and they got to build things. So, so number one. The sets, the, the non-bridge sets, all look a lot like the motion picture because they were, re- yeah, the, the engineering was read the, the, the clear bit, the hole in the floor and the cold clear get that they built for the motion picture. Those, the bones of those sets sat for phase two into motion picture until the end of Voyager and then they tore everything down finally and started from scratch for Enterprise. And it had been so long Stage nine had been so long since that inter- the engineering and all the corridor set had been there that once they tore everything down, they realized the roof had some issues <laughs> and it needed to be reinforced. And so they, for the pilot, they didn't use that stage. They had to use another stage, and then it became their swing stage, like the the set of the week. Okay. Anyway, it's yeah. Wow. That but no, there was a huge, there was a huge hand. Herman Zimmerman didn't really get to design a whole lot. It was like, here's what we got. We're going to be budget-minded, and um, I mean they, they made it up on the movies. He got to go you know crazy with the E and all that. But the, the original D sets were all how we can take the movie stuff and make it the same but different. Yeah, wow. The non-bridge. The bridge was all built from scratch and got to be you know, designed because it was so important. Right, right. And then 10 forward and all that, yeah. Right. Um, well, Dave, Chrissy, Miles, any other questions uh, or any other thoughts as we uh, look at uh, – uh, maybe uh, wrapping up Encounter at Farpoint, anything else you wanted to draw attention to? Because we did get into the details, and this is fascinating to get the background, the details into how things came in. I mean, it's always uh, brings uh, helps flesh out our knowledge and our understanding of the show. But 
Um, any other things you want to kind of point out? See, here's here's media guys because this is I'm just repeating what I had in um, twenty years ago. But. Yeah. Scott, Go ahead, my lights are kind my lights are kind of flashing, so um, I, I may lose power. Okay, no, well, that's all right. That's all right. So if we, if we I only if, got one other thing. Yeah. I only got one other thing for Larry, and and going back to what we were talking about fan fiction and stuff, and I'd be remiss if I didn't thank you for all your work and your contribution to Star Trek Continues. Um, that has been one of my favorite things to watch in between everything else, and it's to me that 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 production is more canon than anything J.J. Abrams put out in the Star Trek universe. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and and I, and any time I would ever get to talk to one of you guys who are involved in that, you know, and just thank you for that oh. that labor. That, that that was such a great a great thing. Well, you're you're welcome. It was a great thing to be part of, and it's you know it's like like I had a lot to do with it. It's Vic's passion, baby, and uh, and but if you're a continues fan, you you know, it was just shocking this week that we lost Grant. Oh yes, yeah. oh it yeah, it really was. We've been talking about that all week, and you know, so R.I.P. Grant was but but. It's like what a what a just a nice I say nice guy but that makes him sound milk toast you know it's like no he was like this shining nice guy he he loved his stuff and he loved what you did and you know God bless him he was able to find you know he had like he had an electrical engineering degree he wasn't like a guy that woke up one day and said I'll do something but the fact that he got to a place a place in his life where he was able to do what he loved and loved doing what he loved and then spread that and then he loved what you were doing and but then just such a nice easy going uh, we've been talking about it all week in different places but right. uh, but thank you though i'm glad you enjoy a lot yeah. of people a lot of people love continues and a lot of people get it yeah so yeah, yeah. <laughs> same here it was great to be part of that yeah it's awesome well uh anything else before we wrap up the show here um i going back I actually, you know, did enjoy. You know, we we, we hear the first season and next one wasn't the greatest, but I actually going back and rewatching it again. I, I was very enjoyable. I love the go the the back and forth between Picard and and Q. I mean, that they're just the whole philosophical argument wrestling. I just thought that's that that that, that, that that's that's where a lot of good Star Trek is is having those those philosophical arguments and and. Um, it, it was fun to go back to. Yeah, absolutely. Do you, do you did you see it in the day? Um, I didn't see it in the day. I wasn't. I I came back to Star Trek Next Gen probably, you know, sometime during the second season. And I caught it in reruns. Okay. I, the only reason I'm asking, had you been an original fan? I was an original fan. I was yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So my and all you guys. So here's my question. You know, in the time and also versus now also did it feel like parts of like you were talking about the q and picard uh you know that was that was great it was awesome and that's what to a lot of people made it feel feel bridging the gap in star trekky as much as having mccoy's scene but did did it strike you as like repetitive like i like i said i already had one person who watched it with me on view on debut night who just felt like oh it's just roddenberry writing some more lecturing super alien talk, talking about poor puny humans did it feel like repetitive from the original series at all to you or anybody? Yeah, but but not in a bad way though. See, to me that's a positive. It's not a negative. I thought to me that almost bridges the original series with with next gen is I mean there there is this constant philosophical 
battle, you know? And so, so, I mean, for me, that makes it even more Star Trek is, yeah, they, they, they did, they yeah. did wrestle with this in original series and, and, and wrestling it in t- TNG to me, I thought, yeah, this is, this is, this is a continuing theme. And to me, it, it works. So it kind of falls into that. Uh, it's been 20 years, damn it. And new people need to hear this. Right. Y- yes, exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. Which is kind of where we are again now. Yeah. Right, okay. right, right. Well, uh, to me, I'm I mean, curious. it is. Well, wait, the, me- the message, the message of Farpoint for me is still relevant. Yes. Yeah. So, as we, as we discussed well, that's earlier. The that's the kind of thing that, that's the only downside sometimes about being a veteran fan, because I don't talk about old fans anymore. Veteran fans, as you come with all that, for good and bad, you come with all that baggage. I almost envy the new people, the kids or whatever, that are watching Discovery and Picard and all that and, and Lower Decks and Strange New Worlds. And they're watching it without all that. I love talking to them. And then because they, they will eventually probably go back and it's, it's what always happens. They will yeah. eventually go back and watch a lot of the older shows and good on them. They get to watch all those for the first time, too. But right. seeing them come to the new shows without all that, and just because you know, then I feel like if they've got an issue with something, then it's, you know, then it's really yeah. relevant more than I'm carrying my 20 years of headcanon and right. <laughs> and prejudices <laughs> around and and knowing what's going to come down the line five and ten and fifteen and twenty years later. Right. Right. So anyway. Yeah. Well, Larry, we really do appreciate you coming joining us tonight here on the Sci-Fi Diner, and it's uh, always a pleasure. Yeah, it's, it's 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 a pleasure to have you back. So, just remind people who are are with us yet, uh, where where can they find all all things Larry on the internet? Where's a good hub for them? Uh, well, if you're a web browser person, LarryNemechek.com has the gateway to everything. I'm at Larry Nemechek on Twitter, and but I talk about politics and Sooner football and my man Will Rogers and a lot of a lot of things there too. And my Instagram is Larry Nimichek's Trekland, which is the same as my main Facebook page. But um, I've got a Facebook page for Life Support Live. We have a Facebook page for the Trek Files. We have a, pay- a Facebook page for uh, my documentary, The Con of Wrath, which I haven't spoken of a lot because people are tired of me talking about it because it's been yeah. so long. But we're actually working on that, too, during COVID time. So hopefully here in another few months, we'll have something to say about The Con of Wrath, right. too. But um, that's a good LearningMinutecheck.com is a good place to, to go. Awesome. And you can, and again, the uh, the, pi- the uh, pilot, the uh, panel coming up for Comic-Con at Home is right. is uh, coming up, well, Thursday the 23rd, if you're hearing this in time to hear it, uh, 5 o'clock. It's the same day as all the big CBS studio panels earlier in the day. And, uh, what- but I've got the three three generations of science advisors for Star Trek, including the current one. Okay, uh, and the other two happen to be the showrunner for The Expanse, Narain Shankar, right. and also Andre Bermanis, who works on The Orville. Okay, so it was, a, it, was a, it was a cool hour. Yeah, good, That's good. A Thursday at 5 Pacific. And where, and where can they find that? Would that be through San Diego Comic-Con? Uh, it's, it's a Comic-Con link. You can go there or you can go to my blog at my site and my event page and just click there and the links are there. Awesome. Very good. Very good. Well, thank you again so much for joining us. Um, I think it's about time for us to wrap up the show, Miles. Yeah. So thank you everyone for joining us. And um, yeah. So in, uh, I guess in an upcoming episode, we will be reviewing, is it going to be Voyager next? D, D- Space Nine. If, uh, D Space Nine will be the next one that we do. Uh, so be looking for that in the next month or so. We'll be uh, doing that for our next Star Trek pilot. Yes, so, all right. Well, I believe that's it, Miles. Why don't you take us out of the show? All right. Till next time. Good night and good luck. We'll see you. And go boldly. 
Trek well, everybody. we're going to get a vaccine is probably March. Um, and that's if these work. Yeah. Unless, they the nano, unless they go with the nanobody route, which they are doing. Can you put no Borg nanites in me? No, it's not a Borg. It's Resistance is futile. Resistance is futile, okay, Dave. We'll all join the Llama Collective. <laughs> the Llama Collective. Larry, you joined us at the worst time. I'm sorry. I'm serious. <laughs> He's he's he, he's joining he's joining the Llama Collective right now. So, so thank you. Uh, he's now our leader. He's the leader of the Llama Collective. So awesome, the <laughs> Llama King. <laughs> Larry's like I joined the wrong podcast. <laughs> they're, they're, I'm just explaining to them, Larry, about the nanobodies that they've extracted from the llamas to help see if they can use it to fight coronavirus. That's oh seriously. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Llama, llamas and camels have a unique um, immune system that has this thing found in no other mammals called nanobodies, and they've used it before to help fight cancer. And they are in the midst of trying to see if it will help fight COVID. Okay. There you well, go. Good. Yeah. You learn something new from yeah, yeah. You need someone. Need something to. Like an old Python sketch about llamas and the guy on the Spanish guitar. <laughs> that's, that's right. All I'm up with. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, I can't promise Spanish guitars, but when we get our nanobodies, but but that would be not. great. That would be great. Yeah, can you can you get on that? Yeah, we can work on that. I will tell uh, them you can do the treatment, but there <laughs> has to be some Spanish guitars, or we just can't fund it. I'm sorry. 